Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. History shall be kind to me, for I intend to write it. Those were the famous words of Winston Churchill, whose career included big triumphs, like Britain's victory over Adolf Hitler in World War II, and also some abysmal failures, like the bloody and superfluous Gallipoli campaign in World War I. On Thursday, the Senate began to reevaluate one of the most controversial episodes in our own history, the Iraq War. Because in a legal sense, that war is still not over. From President Obama's on-again, off-again romance with drone strikes, to President Trump's controversial assassination of Iranian General Qasem Soleimani, this 21-year-old statute has been a key underpinning for America's so-called forever wars. But after a generation of use and abuse, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is calling a vote to repeal the Iraq AUMF, or Authorization for the Use of Military Force. It is the rare measure that just might pass both houses with bipartisan support. The man who is the architect of many of the national security policies that the Iraq AUMF enabled has just published a lengthy new book evaluating the Bush foreign policy legacy. And he has something to say before Congress votes. I'm Ryan Lizza, and this is Playbook Deep Dive. Stephen Hadley has seen it all. At the height of his long and influential career, he served as national security advisor to President George W. Bush. He occupied that post from 2005 to 2009 and played a key role in salvaging the war in Iraq at a time when things were going very, very wrong. Before that, in George H.W. Bush's administration, he was Dick Cheney's guy at the negotiating table with Russia. And if you pick pretty much any security crisis over the last 40 years, from 9-11 to Iran-Contra, and even China's recent rise from strategic partner to quarrelsome rival, there's a pretty good chance that you'd find Hadley in the room where the big decisions are made. Hadley's new book is called Handoff. Technically, it's a book about the bureaucratic process of the transition from the Bush administration to the Obama administration. Each chapter covers a single national security or foreign policy issue, and they begin with the original, recently declassified transition memo from the relevant Bush official to their incoming Obama replacement. But really, the book amounts to a history of the last 20 years of war and politics. The transition documents are accompanied by a reconsideration of what the Bush team got right and what it got wrong on Iraq, on Afghanistan, on China, on Russia, and on all of the post 9-11 security policies. Hadley met me at Politico headquarters in Arlington. We focused our discussion on the chapters in his book that are highly relevant to the debates of 2023. And he weighed in on what he believes we stand to lose if Congress is sloppy about repealing the Iraq War AUMF, what Bush got right and wrong on China, how Joe Biden's foreign policy echoes Bush's freedom agenda. 
and how Biden can learn from Bush's successes and failures dealing with Vladimir Putin. Finally, Hadley opened up about something that no president, not Joe Biden, not Donald Trump, and not Barack Obama before him, wants to admit. You know, we now have had three presidents who said they wanted to pivot away from the Middle East and reduce our investment there. And well, guess what? We want to let go of the Middle East, but the Middle East doesn't want to let go of us. And as you've seen, we're still engaged. And the more China is active in the Middle East, the more Americans are beginning to think, well, maybe we need to be active there too. This brings us to an important current question. This week, it looks like the Senate will vote on repealing the AUMF uh, for Iraq, which I think a lot of people are surprised to learn is still on the books. Do you have a, personally have an opinion on that one? I've thought for a while it could be revised and updated, but I think a lot of Americans don't realize that we still have 2,500 or so troops in Iraq. They are not in a combat mission. They are in a training and support mission of Iraqi forces. And they're very critical in that role because Iraq still faces security challenges. ISIS, their caliphate in Iraq was taken away from them, but ISIS is still present in Iraq and represents a security threat. Hmm. Also, the U.S. force presence, the U.S. diplomatic presence, and such economic assistance as we provide, provides a counter to help the Iraqi government deal with the pressure they get from Iran, which is both a close and meddling neighbor, but also a sponsor of a series of paramilitary forces in Iraq that uh, had a role in helping to rid Iraq of ISIS and have some political legitimacy there and that are really not under the control of the Iraqi security forces. So the Iraqi government has a balancing act. Yeah keeping Iran some degree at bay, and to help do that is the American presence diplomatic, militarily, and economically. So it's important that we stay. So if the AUMF is rescinded, it needs to be replaced to something that makes clear that those forces continue in that role. It's, it's very interesting that the uh, recently uh, uh, inaugurated, if you will, prime minister of Iraq, who is a Shia, and who is thought to be very close to the Iranians and supported by a Shia coalition, has been very public that he wants those forces to, to stay, stay. Hmm. and continue in that advise and train and assist role. And it's in our interests that those forces do stay. If we rescind the AUMF without anything new replacing it, what's what are the implications? The lawyers will have to see whether there's an alternative basis for us our forces to remain. But the easiest thing, of course, would be to replace the AUMF with something that uh, authorizes the continuation of that mission. Which might be a bit of a tough sell in, uh, in Congress. I'm not sure. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's a lot of concern about Iran, yeah. about Iran's projection of force through Iraq, into Syria, into Lebanon, and in Yemen. I think uh, because of those forces have an important role in checking Iran in the region, I think there might be turn out to be a fair amount of bipartisan support for that force, so long as it is not in a combat role, so long as it is at the request of the Iraqi government yeah. and limited to a train support and assist role. Yeah. One of the little secrets about foreign policy is there's a lot more f 
continuity between administrations, then you would think, if you listened to foreign policy debated during our presidential campaigns, but the truth is that every administration finds itself building on what came before, and every administration leaves a record that the subsequent administration will, in some sense, have to build on as well. I think certainly in terms of military intervention, by the end of the Obama administration, Obama was no longer a uh, believer in uh, the more idealistic wing of the, the, his foreign policy advisors and their, and their ideas. If, you know, Samantha Power was on one side, um, and I don't know who you would put on the other side as the, as the realist advising him, but he seemed, I think particularly by Libya, by the time which he called one of his greatest mistakes, he seemed pretty burned, maybe not by the idea of democracy promotion and human rights to promotion. I don't think he's ever shied away from that, but certainly in terms of using American power, I feel like Obama flitted between those two poles and ended up much more of a realist than an idealist. I think that's right. I think he fell into the trap that the thinking that they were uh, alternatives rather than can be fused in the way that we tried to do so. What I think is also interesting is how the freedom agenda has come back. If you listen to President Biden, I think overemphasized a framing of democracy versus authoritarianism. Because for a lot of the challenges we have today in terms of Russia, in terms of China, we need both democracies, but we need other countries who may not be democratic, but who are committed to international norms of respect for sovereignty, respect for territorial integrity, respect for borders, not using force to change those borders. For example, with respect to Russia, we should be saying this is not democracy versus authoritarianism, but trying to rally states on behalf of those principles, which are both ideals, but also realistic principles that reduce the risk of conflict and war. And I think that, uh, that in some sense, the Biden administration may have overdone it, but I think the example of the Ukrainian people fighting for their freedom, fighting for their ability to be democratic, to run their own affairs in face of a Russian invasion that is designed to end their sovereignty and incorporate them into Russia. I think it's reminded everybody of the values of democracy and freedom. And I think the Ukrainians have inspired people and reminded people that these are something of value and that are worth fighting for. Since you brought up Russia and China, I'm going let, to let's move to, to those chapters. There's a note in the, in the postscript that sort of summarizes some of the Bush administration's uh, Russia policy, uh, or at least characterizes it. It says, Russia did not lie at the heart of the Bush administration's foreign policy as it had for previous American presidents. Why was that? The Soviet Union represented an existential threat to the United States. It was a country that had an ideology that was basically uh, pledged to uh, undermine and defeat America's democracy. You know, Khrushchev famously said, we will bury you. I don't think it was literal, but I think he was basically saying that the Soviet communism will triumph over Western democracy and market economy. Uh, and it was an existential threat backed up by nuclear weapons and the capacity to basically annihilate the United States. Uh, when the Soviet Union fell apart, Warsaw Pact was dissolved, 
and Russian communism or Soviet communism was discredited. What emerged was not a Soviet Union, but Russia and a number of other states that were now free and democratic, and a Russia that was much reduced in terms of its power, and a Russia that, for the early days of the Bush administration, actually was wanted to be part of the international system, wanted a cooperative relationship with the United States. And Bill and, and Bush said very clearly, both to Putin and also very publicly, and you can some of those statements are quoted in the book, we do no longer view Russia as a threat to the United States. It wasn't an existential threat. It wasn't an ideological threat. It wasn't really a threat to our interests uh, in, in any fundamental way. Indeed, Putin wanted to join with us in the war on terror, for example. And we got a lot of cooperation on proliferation, dealing with the problem of nuclear weapons pursuit of North Korea and Iran, uh, in arms control and reducing strategic arms control of the two sides. We got a lot of cooperation out of Russia. So Russia was really not seen as a threat. And for a lot of reasons, Russia changed over time, a lot of it in the Bush administration, but certainly since. The first call that sought to get in touch with President Bush after 9-11 was Vladimir Putin. Hmm. And basically with expressions of support yeah. for America in its struggle against terror. Shortly after 9-11, President Bush goes to Shanghai and meets with John Zemin to show the world that the American president is not going to be imprisoned in the United States dealing with terrorism, but we're still going to have a global presence, but also to sign up John Zemin uh, to support us in this struggle against terrorism. So, and he was supportive? And he was supportive. Yeah. So you're right, but it wasn't just about that. We had great cooperation on dealing with proliferation, dealing with nuclear proliferation, as I said, dealing yeah. with Iran and North Korea. Uh, China was very helpful in dealing with the 2008 financial crisis. We in Russia agreed to dramatically reduce our levels of strategic nuclear we weapons. The, the Bush strategy was to see both with respect to China and Russia somewhat the same kind of policy. China and Russia both at that point early in the administration wanted to be part of the international system, not to disrupt it. They wanted a cooperative relationship with the United States. And President Bush thought that if we could bring them into the international system, they would be supportive of that system. They would not try to overturn it. They would not act contrary to our interests. And they could be the basis for a cooperative relationship across the range of issues. And we got a lot of cooperation out of it. But for different reasons, the two countries decided in the end of the day to reject that offer. Putin, for two reasons. One, he became increasingly authoritarian and moved away from wanting to build a democratic Russia. Bush used to say to Putin, Vladimir, you have an opportunity to bring Russia permanently into the West. And Putin would say, Mr. President, that's what I want to do. But there are dark forces in Russia that should not be awakened. So you let have to let me do it in my own way, in my own time. And over time, it became clear that Putin wasn't going in that direction, but he was going in the opposite direction. And secondly, the color revolutions in Georgia, Ukraine, and Kyrgyzstan, 2003 to 2005, convinced him that we were trying, using the CIA, to install puppet regimes on his border that would be anti-Russian and as a dress rehearsal for destabilizing Russia. 
And in 2008, he goes into Georgia and our hopes for bringing Russia into the, into the West, into the international system are dashed. And of course, followed in 2014 and now 2022 by invasion of Ukraine. With respect to Russia, is there any one policy, any one decision that you think back on and think we pushed our democracy efforts or expansion of NATO or anything else uh, in Europe that we backed Putin into a corner and we should have anticipated his, his reaction? Do you ever think back to managing the relationship along those lines that could have not allowed Putin to succumb sounds like eventually he succumbed to the dark forces that he was he was telling you existed in Russia you know I think a lot of things get lost uh, you know getting out of the ABM treaty uh, which is something Putin cites Bush talked to Putin about that we wanted to do it cooperatively with Russia so that Russia the United States would cooperate on missile defense and indeed, at Kenny Bunkport, when President Bush and his father entertained Putin, Putin said publicly that missile defense could be an area of strategic cooperation between the United States and Russia. And if you look at the chronology that goes with the Russia transition memo, in the second Bush administration, every other month, we have teams meeting to try to iron out a way we can cooperate on missile defense. It doesn't work at the end of the day. Uh, similarly, on NATO enlargement, Putin really, in the first administration, doesn't really complain about NATO enlargement. In the first uh, four first years of Bush? Bush yeah. First four years of the Bush yeah. administration. It's something that, as he thinks about it, becomes more problematic for him. Hmm. I think we, as a policy, we wanted to bring Russia into the international system, but we wanted to hedge against the failure of that effort yeah. and a Russia that returned to the dark side. And that's why we did NATO enlargement. Because we thought if those countries, one, they, they were out from under the Soviet thumb. Right. They were out of the Warsaw Pact. They desperately wanted to join the West, join the EU, join NATO. And we thought we had to respond to that. But also, we thought to leave them unmoored between Russia, a potentially revanchist Russia, and NATO was not a ticket for stability. And given the direction that Russia has gone... It's a good thing we expanded NATO because that is now a platform for dealing with Russian expansionism. It's not by accident that the two countries Russia has invaded, Georgia and Ukraine, were left out of NATO enlargement. Um, I still struggled with this issue about whether we were part of the cause until I read Putin's speech before he went into Ukraine. Yeah, the and really the crazy half one. Of it, <laughs> It has all the grievances about NATO enlargement, missile defense, all the rest. The front part of it is all about— This is this revisionist history of Russia this and Ukraine. Is this, yeah. Ukraine never is a real country, can yeah. only be sovereign where it's part of Russia, and his declared objective not to keep Ukraine out of NATO, but basically to destroy Ukraine as a sovereign country. And once I read that, I thought, you know, this is not about NATO enlargement. It's not about missile defense— uh, it is not about getting out of the ABM treaty. This is the dark view of Putin trying to restore the Russian empire, not the Soviet empire, the Russian empire, and assert Russians' control over 
historic Russian lands, particularly those that have Russian speakers in them. This is the problem. And that's something that, quite frankly, we couldn't have prevented. There's a somewhat similar story reading the chapter on China. Everyone's a China hawk now. Um, But one of the distinctions that George W. Bush made with the Clinton-Gore administration was to move from strategic cooperation to um, strategic competition. I think that was the, the subtle distinction, right? It was to signal a little bit more of a, of a tougher position vis-a-vis China. Go ahead. Yeah. President Bush in the campaign said he thought of China less as a strategic partner and more as a strategic competitor. And then, of course, we have the EP3 incident where a hot-dogging China pilot forces down a U.S. reconnaissance Air Force uh, plane. Reconnaissance this is pre-9-11, plane. right? Pre-9-11. This is probably the biggest, uh, before 9-11, the biggest foreign policy crisis. Was indeed, and they kept the, the, the crew hostage and kept the airplane hostage for days uh, in terms of the crew and weeks for the airplane. So this started out actually in a good way because it showed Bush uh, was skeptical of China and was not going to... Uh, give in to China's uh, objectives or Chinese coercion. And I think it was a useful wake-up call that this was going to be a new person that they were going to have to deal with. On the other hand, Bush adopted a policy of trying to integrate China into the international system, but again, hedged by at the same time strengthening our relations with Japan, South Korea, Australia, other allies and friends in the region, forging a strategic partnership with India, which is now very much a crucial element of our dealing with the emergence of China. So it was an engagement strategy with China, try to bring China in the internationalism, have a constructive relationship, but also hedge in the eventuality that it did not work. And of course, those alliance relationships are what the Biden administration is now relying on to deal with the challenge of China. There's a good line in the postscript on the China chapter that I think summarizes what you just said and also gives listeners a flavor of how these chapters try to wrestle with what you guys got right and wrong. And um, I think each postscript uh, starts with this heading, how did the Bush administration do? Uh, and on China, the answer, um, do you remember who wrote the postscript? Paul Hanley and Michael Green and Faryar Shirzad. Okay, so it was three authors. And they write, The Bush administration's strategy anticipated the possibility of China's evolution in a more menacing direction, but was not premised on the inevitability of such an evolution. Now, I know hindsight is 20-20, but the obvious question is, should you have been more focused on that adverse trajectory for China? A lot of people will say we were naive to try to think that you could bring China into the international system. Yeah. Uh, It's what China said they wanted. And I think it was true with respect to Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao, the presidents with whom we dealt. So it was really Xi that changed everything. It's really Xi Jinping who comes in in 2012 and has a very different agenda. One thing I say to folks who say, you know, we, you were naive, I say we weren't naive. We had a, It was a reasonable thing to try to do, but we did hedge, and it's a good thing that we did hedge. Uh, but also I think that if we had not tried to do so, and Xi Jinping had come to power and China had become the kind of competitive challenge that it is now. A lot of people would have said, well, it was the, the aggressive unilateralist Bush administration that pushed China yeah. to become 
a competitor, if not an adversary, the United States, in the same way Putin says NATO enlargement and missile defense push Putin. I think it was not true in the case of Putin for the reasons we've said. It certainly was not true in the case of China. But I think if we had not tried to bring China into the international system, there'd be a lot of discussions now about who lost China. Right. And a lot of the blame would be on the United States. Whereas one of the great things we have in going around the world and trying to rally the world to deal with the Chinese competitive challenge is precisely that it's clear that it wasn't U.S. policy that drove China in that direction. We tried. It was Xi Jinping and his very different view of where he wanted to take China, getting rid of hide and bide, hide your power, bide your time, rather being much more assertive yeah. uh, of China's role on the international stage more uh, aggressive uh, in terms of intimidating his ally his neighbors and other countries economically and militarily uh, inserting the communist party uh, more deeply into chinese society trying to discredit democracy abroad even undermine democracy here at home this is a very different china it's a very different choice that xi jinping has made and if anybody had any question about who heads countries matter, <laughs> you know, take a look at the case of Xi Jinping. He's a very different leader than Hu Jintao and Jiang Zemin, and he's taken the country in a very different direction. There were seeds of this under yeah. the two presidents. Don't get me wrong. But if it was a relatively flat curve, Xi Jinping has, has raised the slope of that curve dramatically. Whereas the Chinese Communist Party was sort of losing power vis-a-vis -vis governmental institutions. You've just seen in the recent party congress and the recent meeting of the National People's Congress, uh, the uh, party is now asserting itself at the expense of governmental institutions. This is a new direction for China. So with both of these cases, the direction that China and Russia takes is not always uh, uh, determined by what we do. <laughs> There's something I talk about is the Vietnam conceit that sort of came out of the 60s in the Vietnam era, which was if only the United States had the right policy, everything would be right in the right. world. And we're not, only are we not that clairvoyant, we aren't that powerful. And domestic political factors and domestic culture matters in these countries. Russia is a good case in point. Russia, if you read Russian history, and I'm no Russian historian, but for 400 years, Russia has been struggling with its relationship with the West, how to get it right. Yeah. And we thought that at the end of the Soviet Union, there was a chance actually to finally get Russia's relationship with the West right. And it didn't work out. And it is, I think, a, a reassertion of some cultural and historical trends that have resurfaced again under President Putin. Are there a common set of ingredients that um, predict whether the U.S. will be successful in changing the behavior of a country along the lines we want? <laughs> it's hard to know. It's a very good question. And, you know, each case is different. But I think if you look back at them, there are a couple things that emerge. One is helping countries build stable, secure, prosperous, and democratic polities is a tough job takes a long time, and it requires a continuing commitment. So one of the questions is where we've been successful 
we've been willing to stay the course for a long period of time. Think about that. Germany, Japan. Japan after World War II, Europe after World War II, helping them rebuild from the devastation of the war with economic assistance and troop presence. And we still have troops in both of those places. South Korea after the Korean War, same thing. Yeah. Um, so one is a willingness of the Americans to make a long-term commitment economically, diplomatically, and in some sense with a military presence. Secondly, in order to facilitate that, the task needs to be a priority for the American people. The American people need to understand why it's in America's interest to make that kind of long-term commitment. It needs to be explained to the American people. Americans are rightly, no, instinctively isolationists want to take care of things at home. Yeah. And it has to be explained to them why it's important that we be engaged abroad because it matters for peace and security at home. Yeah. Third, bipartisan consensus and policies that can survive presidential transitions from one party to the other. Plan Columbia is a very good example of that. Bipartisan support across multiple presidential administrations of different parties with firm congressional support. And it's worked over time. Four, if you're working with a country that has some democratic historical traditions, that clearly helps. That's yeah. one of the reasons why Europe went uh, so well. Yeah. Um, I think there are, there are a lot of other factors, but those are sort of uh, elements. And I think the other thing is um, leverage. Leverage. This balance of power favors freedom. You know, in post-war South Korea, post-war Japan, post-war Europe, given the devastation, America had enormous leverage. Yeah. Uh, in places like Iraq and Afghanistan, lots of leverage but not the kind of sustained presence over time that would really be required. I haven't given up on either of them, quite frankly. I think a lot of the work we did in Afghanistan and is still ongoing in Iraq, it's going to make a difference over the long term. But a lot of ups and downs. Uh, those were particularly challenging situations. Yeah. Uh, on the bipartisan consensus, one of the things that comes out when you're talking about the war on terror is how really Bush's second term was really about getting all of the very controversial policies of the first term, the post 9-11 period, I think the word you use is institutionalized, yep. getting them on firm legal footings, especially the really controversial stuff like interception of terrorist communications, interrogation, and rendition. And uh, reading that chapter and, and reading how much there was a lot of continuity with the Obama administration, a lot of those policies were in a place where um, it's not like Obama had to dismantle the entire post 9-11 architecture that you guys set up. Quite you had spent a lot of work doing that already. Right. President Bush wanted to take those policies, which were controversial, uh, wanted to bring them into the light of day, and wanted to provoke a discussion so that we could build a national consensus. And we did it in the way we did. It was a it was sort of a well, woolly process. Well, some of it was process. forced on you. <laughs> One, there were press leaks that <laughs> yeah. forced us to bring stuff out into the open yeah. and provoked a public controversy. There were congressional investigations. Yeah. There was congressional legislation. There were judicial decisions all the way up to the Supreme Court. There were subsequent reviews in the administration. We necked down those programs a lot under the Bush administration, and uh, President Obama reset them further. 
at the end of the day, we came out with a rough national consensus about what we're going to do and what we're not going to do in order to defend the country yeah. against terrorism. I think the watchword is we are successful when our policies are bipartisan, reflect a partnership between the Congress and the president. That makes them sustainable domestically. So we're successful when we're bipartisan, bicameral, executive and legislative, and when we take it and it becomes an element for a global effort. That's where you get the real leverage for change. Yeah. Steve, thank you for doing this. It's a fascinating book. I think listeners will get a lot out of it. And I appreciate you talking to us. Thanks very much. I appreciate the opportunity. And that's our show. Our producers are Kara Tabor and Afra Abdullah. Our senior producer is Alex Keeney. I'm Ryan Lizza, host and executive producer of Deep Dive. Jenny Amont is Politico's executive producer of audio. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Please subscribe to Deep Dive wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>